I would describe it in hindsight and then also in my current life as like some sort of extreme bias to learning. I just wanted to know more things so I could like get farther faster. You are listening to Change Lab, conversations on transformation and creativity. I'm Lauren Buckman, president of Art Center College of Design. Recently named one of Fast Company's most creative people in business, Jessie Janae has accumulated a list of achievements both audacious and impressive. She started her first company, a custom t-shirt concern, out of her parents' basement at age 15. Several years later, while attending Art Center's product design program, she founded her second business, Lumi, featuring an alternative printing process called Inkodye. This time, she had upgraded from her Christmas gift-funded first company to a Kickstarter campaign and a stint on TV's Shark Tank. Ultimately, Janae and co-founder Stefan Ango, whom she met at Art Center, continued to iterate Lumi in response to the marketplace. In 2015, they relaunched Lumi as a full-service customized packaging resource for e-commerce businesses. This concept sparked interest in Silicon Valley, and the company recently received $9 million in venture capital funding. Curious to see the results of Janae's passion and tenacity, I decided to interview her on site at Lumi HQ, a sprawling, light-filled, converted factory near downtown LA. Like most everything she does, Janae assumes her role as CEO with remarkable grace, ease, and a contagious enthusiasm. The company is both upbeat and intensely focused, not unlike Jessie herself. Together, we explored her determination and courage as a leader, the fundamental principles that guide her, and her unique capacity to find the extraordinary in the everyday. Jessie refers to herself as the person who does the thing. That's just who she is. And it is, indeed, a remarkable thing to witness. Okay. Well, thank you, Jesse, for doing this. Yes, of yeah, course. It's wonderful to meet you. One of the things that really interests me uh, with lots of people I talk to is to talk about them as kids, as yeah. children. And I'm interested for a lot of reasons because so many Arts Center students, as you probably know, talk about the fact that you know they've been drawing cars since they were three years old. Yeah. I've done enough research on you that I know that age 16 or almost 16 was, a, was an important turning point. Yes. I'm interested in who Jesse was before age 16. Okay. And I'm interested in that creative spirit, that enterprising yeah. nature, that tenacity that is clearly so evident today. Yeah, um, that's, it's an interesting, um, it's an interesting question. I definitely always wanted to build things and I didn't have the skill set and that would be very frustrating to me. I think I can remember as a kid like wanting to do physical things, like having a normal bed and wanting a bunk bed and asking like, can I just build a bunk bed? And my parents being like, absolutely not. <laughs> um, you cannot build your own bunk bed. Like that sounds extraordinarily dangerous. So there's now, how a, old would you be at that point? Like seven. Yeah, 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 yeah like seven. Um, I, I remember having an exclusive preference for graph paper um, so that I could draw like what I referred to as architectural drawings. I don't think they were. 
think they were like, but I would do a lot of like layouts of like my future house will be like this and different things were very um, like I wanted to build things and I didn't have any tools at my disposal besides like graph paper and like colored pencils. So, um, but I remember distinctly being very almost just frustrated about the disconnect between what I could imagine and what I knew Mm. how to build. You do remember that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And so it all gathers up into uh, an interesting business you start in the basement of your parents' house. Do you want to tell us about that? So I decided, and going back to the childhood component, like how do decisions even get made? I think that's something I don't talk about very much is um, that before I started my first business, I was like kind of doing the all-star school experience where I was doing, I did three varsity sports in my sophomore year and was like getting good grades, not like A plus on everything, but really good solid grades. And I tried out for getting the cross country captainship for my junior year and I got passed over. And this like ruined my life at the time. I, I was like, how is this possible? I'm doing everything right. Like how do you, how did I not get this one thing? And, and I think that there's moments in time where we all have that kind of lesson, like it doesn't mean you did something wrong. You just didn't get the thing or someone else is better or whatever. But what it spurred me to do was like decide on how to use my time. Like I had been very excited about being on the cross country team and being a captain. And when I realized I was not going to be a captain, I decided to do something else with my time. I decided, you know what, like, and it wasn't really like I'll show them. It was just more like now that I know I won't have this experience, what else do I want to do with like my fall or something? And I decided beyond school, beyond the yeah, routine. What else could I do that is as interesting to me? Um, and I decided to start my first business. And I decided to start my first business before deciding what it would be. I just decided, you know, what would be like equivalent in my teenage brain to being the cross country captain, running a business. Like, <laughs> like, like this is how decisions I feel like get made that are maybe not as discussed. Where it's like those things were equivalent to me. And so I decided I'm doing the second thing. And by the way, was money a motivation for you at all? It wasn't like me starting a business to make money at the beginning, but it was, I was interested in getting my life started, so to speak. Like I was interested in the notion of learning. That's why I was interested in even being the cross country captain. I was like, let's learn some leadership skills. Like, let's do this thing. Like, I'm, <laughs> like I'm a teenager. Like I want to be past this like I want to learn what is like next adult equivalencies I think were what I was searching for and and that was like okay running a business gives me some adult equivalencies I'll learn something about how to operate in this world and then the money component was less like I need money it was more like I will have an adult skill okay so specifically this t-shirt business in the basement yes can you describe it so I um decide to start printing t-shirts in my parents' basement. I didn't know what I was doing. I researched screen printing. I created like a spreadsheet of all the different things I would need to start a t-shirt business and asked like everyone who who I thought might give me a Christmas gift. I like designated everyone different things so that at the end of Christmas season, I had everything I needed (laughs) to do it. So I like distributed the load and I start this thing. And the goals at the first were simple. I started selling t-shirts to my friends at school. I would draw. This was the creativity element where I realized that I didn't know what to put on the shirts. And I realized I wanted to be 
some like a thing that I had created. I didn't just want to print as a service. So one of my first experiences drawing was just like, I have nothing to put on these shirts. I guess I better draw something. I better get good at drawing. I had never drawn anything in my life, but it was a means to an end. Like it was like, I want to have something cool on this t-shirt. I guess I better draw stuff. So I think there's so many points where that was my decision making. It's like, I guess in order to solve this problem, I better learn this skill. It was less, I'm a talented illustrator. I guess I'll start a t-shirt company. Like it's. <laughs> or I have a great vision for a business and I'm going to execute against that vision. Yeah. I'm going to manifest it. In, in that, I just wasn't at that place in my I was almost going to say career, but at this point I'm like 15 or something. But yeah, I, I just, things were like a means to an end. Um, so I set up my parents' basement to be a printing shop. Um, I start selling t-shirts to my friends. Um, and then I realized like, there's a limit to this, you know, like there's a limit. I only have so many friends. <laughs> um, I, sh what is the next phase of this? And, and that even is a question that kind of echoes through some of my decisions, which is like figuring something out to the, where it's like mildly functional and then immediately asking yourself like, okay, okay, I'm here. What's the next phase? And so for that business, the, then this really sets me on a whole trajectory, even of being here in California talking to you now, because I was like, all right, if I want to sell them more, I need to do it beyond my friends. And I convinced my parents to let me come out to California for the summer between my sophomore and junior year of high school to sleep on a family friend's couch, to sell my t-shirts to stores. Like, first of all, there's so many flaws in this plan. Like <laughs> the fact that my parents even entertained this like is remarkable to me even looking back. But do you think it was to encourage something in you? Do you think there was maybe a deeper? Yes, I think that it was interesting to them that I was asking to do this. Like, you know, I, I was 15 going on 16 and, and I'm like, I need, and the way that I would come to them would be like, I need to grow this company. Like, like I, <laughs> like I would come to them and be like, there's a limit to my friends. Like I, you know, I'm only charging like $18. Like, like this is the path. Like this is the next step for me is like to go to California and sell these t-shirts. Cause I had a, I also had charted out how many boutique stores that could like sell independent shirts existed. And like, I'm and in California, there's like so many, like in store in, in cities like San Francisco and LA, there's like hundreds. And I showed my parents a chart of like how in Detroit there's like six. And I was like, there's like six, like, what am I going to do here? Like, I have to get out of this place. Like, um, <laughs> um, and this is like, you pitched them. I pitched it them. It was a prelude to your VC pitch. <laughs> I pitched them the concept. And I think they were impressed with, Again, there's so many flaws yeah, you did your in the homework, logic, right? but they're impressed with the homework. Yeah. They're impressed that I, I think I can probably relate to that. Again, I don't have kids yet, but I can relate to being impressed that anyone is like coming to you with this like well-formed, like, you know, potentially flawed, but well-formed concept. Right. Okay. And so you, so you, you come to sell t-shirts in, in, in Southern California. Yes. And what happens? It actually works better than one might think. Um, I, I do credit something to the cute factor of like a 16 year old walks into your store with like literally a clipboard i'm this is i'm this is what happened to some and store are, are you holding it are, are, are you holding t-shirts on your oh, arm yeah and... yes i'm like this, it's me 
imagining, like from having watched just like TV, like how someone would do this. Clearly there's the, there's the internet, but I didn't even know what one would search to figure this out. So I literally have a clipboard because I feel like that's what people have. And then you've got, and then I have like shirts and then I have like created an order form. Like how come someone place orders if I don't have an order form? I don't know. Um, so, and I have like a business card and stuff. And I would go in and be like, can I talk to the manager? And they'd be like, about what? And I'd be like, well, I've created this t-shirt line and maybe you'd like to sell them. And I think that the world is so much more receptive than our fear psyche tells us it is. Like, I could probably do the same thing today. And people don't immediately just go like, get out. Like, people don't yell in people's faces. It can happen, but it's actually kind of irregular. So that was an interesting life lesson too. And long story short on what happens is I do end up selling into some stores. Um, I learn what a fashion showroom is, which even in the past 10 years has changed significantly. Um, so I actually got my t-shirt line picked up by a showroom who was going to represent it. That never really happens later, like, um, spoiler alert, but, but I like learned how to do these like mechanisms of business. And then I, I, you know, made a little but very little money doing the whole thing. But by the time I get back to Detroit to go to my junior in high school, I'm like convinced that like high school was a waste of time at that point. <laughs> I was like, look at me, I can go sell t-shirts. I'm fine. <laughs> Did you experience any in any kind of rejection at all? I mean, was yeah. there, there was and, and did that just, was that water off a duck's back? Was that just? No, no, no. It's like, no, it was like deep and wounding. Like, <laughs> you, you it, yes, plenty of, like more people said no than yes. Um, people would say like, I hate these. Like, you know, like they look at the product and be like, this just isn't good. Like, and I'd be like, okay, thanks for the feedback. <laughs> Like, I talk about this more now, and I, I can't remember how much I would think about it then, but my dad was very into baseball, and I think there's an interesting analogy that I think I had baked into my brain a little bit around um, batting averages, which is, like, the greatest players of all time have, they like... fail seven out of ten times. Yeah, right, bat, yeah, right. yeah. That's life, right? Like, and the, and the difference between uh, an all-star player and mediocrity is, like, you know, the 0.22 to the 0.34, like that is fascinating. And I think that's the kind of, I don't know if I would, I wouldn't have been that articulate then, but I think it's that type of thinking that keeps you going through the nose is just like, this is normal. And so you go back to school that year in your junior year. Yes. But rumor has it you didn't complete your senior year. Correct. Yes, I did. I went through junior year and then there's this whole petition process you can do in my school district with like this set of parameters and doing some extra college classes and stuff to actually like test, test out or just graduate. It's called early graduation. Um, and so I did that. And so I got my diploma mailed to me later and I just did not attend my senior year. I just had this directional feeling of like, I need to start on my own path. Otherwise I just, it will be harder later. Um, and so I got in my car and drove out here. And speaking of your car, was it this the 1969 yes, Lincoln? Yes, it's still it's rotting in back of this the, building. It's, it's here. I, I, <laughs> yeah. I should see it. So, how yeah. old were you when you fixed up your 1969 Lincoln? That was, I guess, maybe starting 15 and going again, the compelled 16. to do some to yes. do something with that car. So, my dad is a local lawyer in Detroit, 
And he had, he would do legal work for a dealership. There's a lot of dealerships in Detroit who do legal work for a dealership. And he had a program to get dealer demo cars um, in lieu of payment for his legal work. And so there was a point in time where he said, I can get you a dealer demo car, like when you turn 16. And so I was offered that at 16 and I was like, no. I had this compulsion again to like, no, I think it would be more interesting to like learn about cars and fix up this old car way more work it would break down all the time and everyone i knew was like you could have had a new car like what were you doing <laughs> um and when it broke down were you the one who fixed it yes i've siphoned gas with my mouth like on the side of a road to like try to fix problems or uh, one time i got electrocuted by my car because it was so small the the 6 and lincoln is so huge that i couldn't work on it by leaning over so every time i would work on it i would crawl in <laughs> so so i would put the hood up and and just like crawl onto it so that I could look at things. So imagine me like crawling on there. I basically wasn't getting spark. And so it's playing with different things and I got electrocuted. I got electrocuted by the car and it was intense. Like I, being electrocuted is a weird thing. I still need to understand better, but there is like this physical force you feel. And so I was sitting on top of the engine and I got blown like out. And then, and so I was at a gas station actually. And, um, and so all these people kind of crowded around and I was like, I'm fine. Was like numb, and I was like, I'm fine, guys. Like, it was so, it was like, why was I doing all, why was I putting myself through that? I don't know, I don't know, but I, some sort of, but, but go there. Why, yes. why were you doing it? Because I, I actually think it's relevant to yes. now, it, it shows something about who you are, right? It's like, I would describe it in hindsight, and then also in my current life, as like some sort of extreme bias to learning, some sort of like extreme bias to like. Driving that car taught me more than driving a new car would. I just wanted to know more things and I wanted to condense the learning so I could like get farther faster. And yeah, six months of driving that car, you learn a hell of a lot more than um, six months of driving or a normal car. a year, a senior year in high school. Yes, or a yeah. senior year of high school. Yeah. So I think that, that yeah, some extreme bias towards learning, condensing learning, like being willing to accept pain, um, as a condensed form of like learning is I think a interesting way of thinking about it. And so then Art Center beckons. Somehow yes. you discover Art Center and you want to go there. Do you want to know how I discover it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I am, I'm from Detroit. It's a sign on the road. My, right? No, there's this bias that my parents and everything have towards like practical things. And, you know, like, and that's where I was not following that path already from their perspective of being a lawyer or something like that. And so I start literally searching keywords on Google around like schools and stuff. And I somehow I came to these two words of industrial and design. And I was like, industrial softens the design component for this, for like where I came from. <laughs> like there's a, like literally the two words together sounded like a good idea for me. I started searching industrial design and I was like, art center is the place. Let's go see this place. <laughs> like, but that's, that literally was what happened. And you end up enrolling in the product design. Yes. Program. Yes. And, and, and I ended up meeting who, you know, my co-founder who um, enrolled as well in the same product uh, design cohort. And, um, and that was 10 years ago. And so you stayed there for how long? How long were you there? Two and a half, 
years. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. and did the same thing happen that happened in high school that it was because I don't think you didn't take it to full graduation, right? I didn't know if we were going to cover that. <laughs> yes, Correct. I am not an art center graduate. Any current art center <laughs> students shouldn't listen to this. No, part. It, yeah. graduating is a great idea. Um, you're correct. Like we, we stopped just short of that. But what, um, what, what interests me is, was it that same spirit? The learning is beckoning me somewhere else. I need to go now. Yeah, it is like an urgency feeling. Like I do think that that just as a person, I've always had this urgency feeling. Okay, I'm gonna fast forward now to okay. uh, to Lumi today. Okay. okay, so you closed this past year, mm -hmm. nine million dollar. Yes. Uh, funding. Yes, we did. Yes. Congratulations Thank on that. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So what did they fund? Why don't you tell us about Lumi right now? So yeah. It, it's um, it's a crazy progression, but what we uh, what Seth and I run now is is Lumi Lumi.com and and we are creating a platform for brands to source and manage all of their custom packaging for shipping product to consumers. Most of our brands are e-commerce brands and even more like the the direct to consumer brands are skipping traditional retail channels entirely just to offer product to people and we're helping them do the entire packaging component. So several kind of interesting layers of like how did you get here <laughs> um and and you can draw like some of the more direct ones just like we say product design so of course we like packaging and this stuff is you know akin to our interests but running the first company um which uh steph and i did for four and a half years together a lot of the biggest challenges and most painful moments we have in that company are around packaging, packaging supply chain, sourcing things, inventory problems, physical aspects of running our business. And so in many ways, we lived the problem. And then we had an interest in truly getting to the bottom of the problem because we are, you know, we're industrial design and packaging people and then product people. So we were like, how does this work? Why is this so complicated? Why are we spending almost as much time developing and sourcing our packaging as developing and sourcing our product? Like, why don't we get to focus on our product? And there's an other element to me that is fascinating and relates to our Art Center time about this business, which is our customers now, the people who we are empowering, are us, like are people who have product ideas that want to see those product ideas thrive in the world. So in a way, we feel like we're part of this like ladder or like set of tools that people can punch into when they have a product idea. And it's like, great, like, launch that product, like get that out into the world. And so there's a fundamental premise that I think is really baked into us potentially from Art Center as well, that I don't know if everyone really even believes in the world, which is that like more product proliferation from intelligent people who really care about developing things, bringing them to market is good, is inherently good because it creates competition. You give the PNGs, you know, of the world and stuff some run for their money. Maybe someone else has a better toothpaste. Let's find out. It sounds like um, a there were certain there were there were moments of discovery uh, urges along the way. Yeah. Uh, what what might seem at the moment like a left turn because something came to you. Yeah. And there was something to learn or a problem to solve or so that same spirit of engaging through. Your, your own sense of, of of wanting to take the bull by the horns, for lack of a better metaphor, was yeah. seems evident in how you how you move forward with that. I I think so, and I think there's a thing about it that I really appreciate. Looking back at my Stefan and my choices as we've grown businesses together, and it's that usually when we achieve a set of understanding, one of our first questions is how can we leverage that to make it useful to other people. And there can be a designer stereotype, which is that once you learn how to do something or you have an idea, it's like mine, 
you know, my, my idea. I want this, I want people to point to that and go, that, that well, Jesse brought that into the world. It's a Jesse thing. It's a Jesse shape. Um, mine, mine, mine. There's a place for that. Like there are truly beautiful things that should be credited and that in that way. But there's a place for everything. And so there's a place for that. And there's also a place for using your design thinking as well to see if I can take everything I learned about packaging and help thousands of other companies with packaging. Mm-hmm. I don't get to point to any of that packaging and go, that's Jesse packaging. It's just we're helping everyone with packaging. Uh, an- another thing that struck me and just in my, my reading about you and thinking about what you've done is that you have this capacity to... Um, take something that is maybe seemingly ordinary or that we don't really yeah. think about too much and making it extraordinary. Yeah. Right? And <laughs> I, I heard somewhere, I, I'm not going to be able to give you chapter okay. and verse of where I found it, you talked about a box mm-hmm. and how Jesse responds to a box. Mm-hmm. And I would like to invite you to riff on <laughs> the box, the ordinary thing that becomes extraordinary. Yeah. Um, I think... It is, it is the knowing, right? Like when I look at a box, um, I don't, that's not what I see. Uh, a box is made out of corrugate. That's the right word. The right word is not cardboard. <laughs> and this, this all comes from like your geeky level of knowing. You can never go back. Like a box is, you know, made out of corrugate. And corrugate is three layers of material, two liner boards and a medium board. And when you've seen a corrugator, which is literally the name of the machine, it sounds like the Terminator, running at full speed, can do thousands of feet of, produce thousands of feet of corrugate per minute. And you've seen the big, uh, you know, four ton, two ton paper rolls that you've got three of them and one is getting steamed and put on a little crimpy roll and made into a little, the medium board and the others are laminating in. In, you look at a box and you see that. You see the process that went in to making that and how you know a bunch of people got up at 5 a.m. in the morning and put their boots on to go use the corrugator and do the steam and the wavy thing and all that so that you could then get your Amazon box. And then if it's printed, you've got a whole nother, you know, set of people using loops and, uh, you know, mixing inks and everything to do that piece. Uh, and it's a whole different set of equipment and flexographic presses are still run by men and ladies pressing buttons. Um, that That is what I see when I look at a box and it's like, and then it feels very empowering because it's like you could use that medium, that corrugate to do so many things once you know how the processes work. And then what happens with that box? Well, that was, by the way... <laughs> I, I forgive the pun, but that was a great way to unpack a box. Uh, <laughs> There's a lot of box puns. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, and then, and then you start. You have this packaging business, right? Yeah. And you're using boxes in all kinds of interesting ways. Yeah. And you've taken that that whole process that you identified, and you're yeah. moving it into something else. Yeah. And it's it's fascinating. Like now, to me, it's an extraordinary moment for boxes. Okay, <laughs> because you, we, we all humans right now live in an unprecedented time for how people buy stuff. Um, the fact that we're all used to just like now there's brands like Harry's or Dollar Shave Club and I can just click some buttons and for $9.99 a month, like a razor ships directly to my door in a box. 10 years ago, that's un- that's unfathomable. 10 years ago, brands like Gillette and everything have this stuff on lockdown. You go to CVS, etc. We're in a profound moment of change for how we buy. That means product development, everything is in a profound moment of change, which is fascinating. But it also means packaging. If we're all going to start clicking buttons online, having stuff come to us instead, then the entire way that products get to people has been changing and the box is now center focus. Um, You can use other things beside boxes too. That's something that we talk about here at Lumi is we make the stuff that products go into. 
I don't really care if you want to use a box. Uh, I, li I like boxes. Corgi is fun, as I just mentioned. I can riff on boxes. But maybe maybe in three years, we'll all have developed a new material and no one's using Corgi anymore. We're all using something else. Unlikely, but maybe. In that case, Lumi sells the something else. We are in it to help people get product to customers. It's That's an interesting flexibility as well. Like It's not an obsession with a certain product. You can develop like so much expertise in um, in something when you really come to know it, right? And then you can offer profound value. So like you have more leverage to your other human beings. Like if you try to think about a useful life, like that's another way of thinking about it. People might not think that that's the path I'm trying to be on. People are like, this girl sells boxes or whatever. You, but, but to me, there's actually a high leverage of like potential to be useful to other people. When you take on a problem that a lot of other people have maybe overlooked, there's a higher likelihood that you can bring value to it is like kind of an interesting thesis that I have as well. I detect a wisdom in you and it's a very specific kind of way of looking at the world, maybe seeing the extraordinary and the ordinary, but also you are really good at taking various ideas and extrapolating principles out of that mm -hmm. out of them and then it feels like you want to teach about that mm -hmm. i mean as if teaching was your way of knowing as if if mm -hmm. you were figuring it out as you were going with it and i'm wondering if i'm if mm -hmm. i'm touching on something that you might be able to help us understand a little bit more i think um i that thing i mentioned about trying to condense learning into like a short amount of time it is also so that I can use it and that I can also share it. And I think that there has been a concept I've had for a long time, which is that it that, that it, I want to be useful to other people. It's like a kind of a pioneer mentality. Like if you, you know, are the first person to like set off outside, like a set of countryside and come back, you've like got the map, hopefully. And hopefully that map is useful to other people. And I think there's like a, a part of it that's like that, where even... You have to be willing for the map to be useless. I think that is the hard part of pioneering where like driving an old car, like maybe I do that. Maybe I come back and tell all the teenagers like, skip that one, like <laughs> this is a nightmare. I didn't, I kind of enjoyed it. But, but basically you have to be willing to learn a thing and come back and tell everyone else like, ugh, like don't do that. Like I did it wrong. Um, Maybe seven, ten, seven times out of 10. But I guess what you're getting at is like viewing the purpose of it that you at some point want to make it useful to others or teach others is interesting. And that really speaks to the way that we've chosen to run the businesses. To, right. So and it goes back to this principle. It's not just Jesse's. In yeah. fact, maybe that's not even yeah. interesting to you. It's interesting when you can teach it and, and you can enable others to be able to do it as well. Yeah. And I get, I get a lot of, I think I get a lot of true enjoyment out of that. But then the more businessy side is that usually the the scalable business is also buried in that question. It's buried in the, now I know a thing. I've trailblazed a certain piece of something. Wonder how I can make this useful to others. It's a very useful mechanism in business. Going on to something else here too, because I want to go back to your foray into the world of uh, the venture capitalists okay. and raising $9 million. Yeah. 
And I believe it was at that time when um, you made some kind of comment in the past that suddenly you were a female CEO. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Before yes. you were just a CEO, yes, and yes. now you're a female CEO. Exactly. Yeah, tell about it, that experience of going into that world as a CEO and mm -hmm. then as a female CEO. I think that was a really that was a really interesting experience for me. I had been running basically a bootstrapped company where when you're running a bootstrapped company, the environment is what you created. You really like. You know, I hired the people we wanted to hire. So I had my own environment. When I started to raise money, you're, you're running your own company. You have an environment. But now you're part of this ecosystem, this venture capital ecosystem of bankers and venture capitalists and conferences and everything else. And, and that's why I, I mentioned, like, they are, they're the ones who tell you you are a female CEO. I wasn't really aware. I mean, I knew, I know I'm female and I'm CEO. I didn't know that that mattered. Like, and then, and then I, I, I won't, I'll never forget, like, I won't name names or anything, but I was at an event. Um, I was at, I was at a dinner thing and um, someone came up to me. Um, this is when I learned, like someone came up to me and was like, Psst, like, we have an event for you. And I was like, for me, like, I don't know what the context is. I'm like, why? Like, you know, I'm just one person at a dinner. I'm like, why do you have an event for me? I don't, I'm like so confused. And they're like, for female CEOs. Like, like I got like tapped on the shoulder and told like, there's another thing I'm supposed to go to because I'm a female CEO. It was utterly bizarre to me. And, and I think that what is interesting to sit with is to realize like, now I'm now I'm much more cognizant that sometimes labels can be helpful because maybe there's other women out there who don't think it's possible. And if you create a conversation, now the conversation exists. And so there's wisdom to all of it. But just like any social issue, it's like a pendulum swing of like when it swings back, hopefully we don't need the label again um, because it's because it, it is irrelevant. But it was. I didn't like it at first, and now I've taken more on the mantle of like the useful parts of, of it and hopefully being useful to others. But at first, I didn't like it. And I also, what made me like it le even less is that um, when I went to that event, and it's a funny memory because we sat in a circle and people told stories about like being a female CEO. They were all terrible stories. Like, oh, this happened to me, this happened to me, or I don't like didn't get this funding or whatever. And I was like, I don't want to be in this group. Like, <laughs> this group sucks. Like, you know, like, I, like, there's a basic sensation of like, can I, like, I know you guys just told me I'm a female CEO. Now that I'm hearing about what it's like, like, I'm good. Like, I, like, you don't, it's, it's like someone telling you you're part of a group that is going to be passed up for everything. It's not good news, basically. Um, so not only does that all have to change, because that just shouldn't be reality, but but it's an interesting thing to be to find yourself labeled and then come almost come full circle on like, OK, fine, I'll make peace with the good parts of this. And what was it like really being a woman in, 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 in the in the VC? I mean, I, I assume you went up to Menlo Park and you were yeah, do you, the pitches you were, and conference rooms and all the stuff. And, you, and yeah. you're doing that. And, and yeah. do, do you have reflections uh, specifically about how it felt for you as a woman? Yeah, for sure. I. I think that the scary part is you don't is that you don't know what you don't know and you'll never know what happened if there was bias associated with it. You'll just the never knowing part is the tough part. So if someone says to you like feedback like, you know what, your idea just didn't resonate with me. What does it mean? Does it you don't know? Does it mean the idea didn't resonate? They hate packaging or whatever. I get it. That could happen to anyone. What does it mean the idea as told by you <laughs> didn't resonate? You won't You'll never know the answer to that question, 
that's the hard part. So I have very few stories that are blatant, like, you know, harassment, like very few, which is good. That's good. I don't want those stories. Very few blatant stories. But 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 the gray is the scary part. The gray is the, you know, comparable companies with comparable traction. You know, maybe when we raise nine, someone else raises 12. Like it's like the, the, mm. the gray is the scary. Like mm. is my company getting shortchanged in any way? I have zero accusations to that, but the the not knowing when it when it's your company to run and you've mm-hmm. got forty employees or whatever you have, you you don't want to be the handicap. Um, that's scary, you know. Um, and were you pitching typically to men, or were were yes, were there? Yes, everyone is typically pitching to men. <laughs> yes, the odds are such that you are pitching to men. You find yourself in a full partnership pitch in the final stages of a process. And so the partnership for the VC firm will bring all the partners together. And you can find yourself looking out at a room of 18 people where there's, you know, 17 guys or something. What's weird is how, like, it feels really normal. It's that's the norm right now. So does it feel really weird? No, it should. That's the thing. Like it should feel weird. It should be like, why is this so imbalanced? But it feels really normal because that's what you've been doing. Um, So all of those are kind of interesting reflections on where we all need to push in different directions. But I definitely encourage women to not shortchange themselves, get out there and do. One of the questions I do ask just about everybody I talk to for this podcast is how they think about change and how they influence change in the world. Mm -hmm. And I uh, think there are a variety of different ways of speaking about it. Yeah, I think there are a variety of different ways of thinking about it. It doesn't have to be something that is shattering on a global level. It can be Mm -hmm. a very small, very personal, very intimate kind of thing. But I'm interested in how Jesse thinks about change and the change you influence in the work you do? I think a lot about the energy that I put out into the world um, and and then how, you know, the things that I create have that ripple effect as well. But it's like um, that that energy component, I think, is something that I, that I haven't spoken about yet. I have gotten the feedback multiple times in life in general that I'm like very enthusiastic or, and passionate about what I do. It's really interesting feedback for me because um, I feel like it's very normal. It's like a default state. Um, And I also feel like it's necessary, meaning like if I'm not excited about what I'm describing, like who would be? Like it's my thing. Like I'm telling you to believe in it or whatever. And so I think that's something that I think about when I think about change is, um, is thinking about how you affect other people from an energy perspective and from like what you have created to either help them or limit them. Um, and that, that comes back to the creating tools and being very open, essentially, like almost feeling like, you know what? I'm a human on a planet. I was put on this planet a few years ago. And now like I know certain things. I wonder if those things would be useful to others. I don't even know. Let me give it a shot. Let me put those out in the most positive way I can think about and find out if they're useful. Um, but that, openness of like of just thinking we'll all find out like if what I have to offer is useful kind of like we're all in this together because life is kind of short like that kind of perspective is I think something that I think about when I think about change because it's um it's almost like there's no time to lose like it's like if I don't share what I know with everyone like tomorrow like I only have so many days on this planet like I better get going like there's it's that kind of th- thought process around how I can impact others um and that has created 
a lot of the ways that I've approached it. So that sharing, that openness, and that concept of just like, you know, even packaging, it's like, I just feel like I'm well leveraged as a human being to tell other humans about how to make packaging. Let's give it a shot. If I find out that no one cares, I will think again of like, how could I be useful? But it's, um, that's my thought process. But doing it in a positive way, there's a lot of ways to grow a business. I could, grow the, I could grow the exact same business, making the exact same amount of money with the same amount of employees and stuff and not try to be positive about it or make it fun or interesting. From a business perspective, there's ways to go about it both ways. But the positive part to me feels, again, almost like honoring your fellow humans. Like, again, life is hard. Life is hard for everyone. Like, I've not yet met a human who's like, I don't know, my life's pretty easy. <laughs> Like, you know, and so it's like bring a little bit of energy that helps people get through the day and stuff, too, is um, something I think about. What's hard for you? So many things. I think that something that I that I'll admit to that maybe people would not think about when they think about me or look at my track record is like, I think there have been a lot of times in my career I have what people refer to as imposter syndrome, which is like you, you don't know why you are in that position. Like, you know, when I think of me, like think about a label, like, okay, so currently like Jesse runs a company with 40 employees or whatever. That sounds crazy even to me. Like that sounds crazy. Like, am I ready for that? Should people trust me to do that thing? Um, in the, in the, so there's this waking up to, um, no one really should be trusted really to do that. <laughs> and, and really like, we're all figuring it out. Um, you know, uh, that that imposter level that imposter syndrome thing affects all of us. I think creatives have it a lot because they take things so seriously. They take their work so seriously. So it creates this real feeling of like maybe someone else is better at this. Um, that makes life harder. I don't think that it's reasonable to think of making it go away, but I think it's reasonable to realize that you are you are just inhibiting yourself from getting getting good stuff out into the world. So I think that's hard for me. I think also just the day-to-day -day of running a company um, is hard. Uh, it, most careers are hard, but it's it's a lot of, um, you know, wait to be the CEO with a bunch of employees and uh, whatnot. There's, there's weight to it, um, and it's hard. Anyone who says otherwise, though, is not being accurate. <laughs> And so, and so, with these with, with these challenges and these 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 things that that plague your spirit in a certain way, do you coach yourself out of it? It sounds like, as you're explaining it, that you 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 bring reason to it or perspective to it, and yeah, again, you're you've got this. That's the perseverance thing again, too. I'll I'll, I'll have an inner dialogue where I'm like, okay, yes, this thing is hard, or like maybe even this thing is excruciatingly difficult, but you've got two options. Do it or don't do it. Like th that's the that's the kind of interesting thing to me about life is that like at the end of the day, when you approach every challenge, you can do the thing, see how it works out. Might what might work out, might not work out, or you can stop and you know be paralyzed, or you can turn around and not do the thing and do another thing. Um, and so most of the time, when I approach that challenge, I have an inner dialogue where it's like, you're the person who just does the thing, just do the thing. <laughs> Yeah, that's who you are. <laughs> it's going to be hard. It's going to be excruciating. But that's, that's do the thing. You always do the thing. Um, but that's, I'm just saying it out loud almost is like to simplify it as like, there's not some brilliant monologue. <laughs> it's, it's not, it's not, it is, 
not me reading like another piece of incredible literature or something. It's like, it's like that deciding to me that I'm the type of person to approach a challenge and then get teed up for it and then give it my best shot. So even when I don't want to, even when like every fiber of my being is like, not this thing, this thing is truly awful, or this thing is truly traumatizing or something, it's like, but you've already decided you're the person who does the thing. So just give it your best shot, you know? But this is like, I'm I sort of almost like a crazy person, but that's like what I would say to myself. <laughs> so before we wrap up, I think I have to ask you this question because um, do you see yourself as a teacher? You, because I have this very profound and deep sense of you as somebody who is just always teaching. Does that make sense to you? I think, um, well, I think I really take that as a compliment coming from you since you <laughs> run a uh, education establishment. I I don't think of it that way. I, I That's a very interesting lens on it. I feel like most of my teaching-ish energy is like feels like so much born out of necessity it feels like needed to teach myself things i need to run a company there's a lot of teaching in that there's a lot of like okay here's what we do today how do we do it i don't know i guess we'll look it up like um so i'm right yes so i think but i i but it, it's an interesting lens on like i would never have referred to myself as like oh yes i'm i don't mean in that formal way yeah, right yeah. i'm not talking about a narrow I, yeah. i'm just i just see I mean, it's partly a generosity of spirit. It's mm -hmm. partly a passion for learning. Yeah. It's partly a, a passion for uh, reaching out to others to figure it out with you. It's a it's yeah. a, a kind of philosophical orientation you have. The principles that you abstract from extrapolate from what it is that you are yeah. are doing that 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 kind of form these lessons in the best kind of way of 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 living in life and engaging and learning and creating and. Yeah, and there's this. this it's, it just flows out of you all the time, and so I, I mean it. I'm meaning as a teaching that way. I don't. Yeah. I, I don't. Yeah. I don't mean it so much as that. You know, you're a school mom, or you're yeah. standing in front yeah, of the class with your ruler in your hand. Though it's you could probably do that too. <laughs> it's an interesting lens. I. I, I really enjoy that. Um, I hadn't thought of it that way, but I really. I really enjoy seeing the spark of recognition in someone else's mm. eye. Of like, they got a thing. It just. It almost feels. Maybe you're right. Like maybe this just really speaks to me liking teaching, but it almost feels like that's the essence, right? Like, um, not to get too philosophical, but maybe this, maybe it is. But if you zoom, 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 zoom out of like humanity, um, we're all like trying to maybe pass some form of information along, like in some way. Like otherwise, you're just very, very insular. And I think we're pretty social beings, actually. So if I learn a thing. I can just know it, but but it seems extra special if I get to know it, and then I get to also have other people know it. Um, so I, I yeah, I would agree that's like really um, seems purposeful. So, so with my art center president on, you can take that as an invitation to come teach someday at art center. <laughs> yeah, I'll learn I'll learn even more things, um, and then I'll. I'll um, I think the students would benefit enormously. Yeah. yeah, I think I would love more creative. Um, Minded. I, I would love art center students to like so many of them are very business focused now and whatnot. But it's like, I think I have that that these things are not mutually exclusive. Just I really have lived that in my career. Like business is a mechanism for getting your ideas out into the world. It's a tool. It's like any other tool. Learn how to do AutoCAD. Learn how to do business. Learn how to use the cutting table. <laughs> you know, like it's a tool that it should be in your chest. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you yes. so much for doing Thank this. Thank you. Yeah, it's delightful. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this episode of Change Lab. The best way to support the show is to share it with your community. 
And please feel free to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes, Google Play, or the Apple Podcasts app. For a deeper dive into the astonishing creativity and innovation coming out of Art Center, please visit our website at artcenter.edu. I'd like to extend a special thanks to our small but mighty production staff, producer Christine Spines, co-producer Luis Silva, editor Emily Van Bergen, consultant Bruce Mason, and post-production services provided by Freedom Podcasting. Thanks for listening. Podcasting. Thanks for listening.